0: Welcome to Revenue Harvest, a podcast about the fundamentals of sales leadership. Did you know most sales teams don't hit their sales targets and you can't afford to miss yours? This podcast will give you the answer to questions that will help you lead your team better, consistently exceed your sales targets, and make the most of your career. I'm your host, Nigel Green, and the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who can make you a better sales leader. Let's get started. Nancy Duarte, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. How are you doing,
0: Nigel? I'm doing well. So, uh, first introduced to your work uh, in 2015, and I didn't know, I didn't know who you were. So, 2015, I am getting ready to participate in the sale of a company, and I've got the biggest pitch of my life. Me and the chief marketing officer are pitching the potential acquirer on why they should buy this business. And I'm literally traveling and I'm at the airport and I get this HBR guide to persuasive presentation. And I just devour this thing. Long story short, I feel like I had you as a mentor, didn't know it. We sold the business for 10 times revenue. uh, And the 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 company that bought us said part of the reason they bought it is they could see what the future would be like. That we talked about what was left in the business for them, not what we had done, but what was left for them. And that just came straight from from your work. And so thank you for that. In In your TED Talk, you said that stories can sometimes create a physical response in us. And we all know that. We've all sat through a movie and we've had that experience. And then you quickly say, but on the spectrum of feeling, most presentations leave us with nothing yeah. and you've got some ideas about why that is and so tell me why do you think presentations leave so much more to be desired
1: yeah i think it was that they flatline i said <laughs> like you feel nothing you're dead inside during a presentation i think I, I, for a long time like p- people just expected presentations to be boring and and i do think in the last 10 years or so the mindset's flipped and you have to show up and you have to be on now. So part of it's our work, uh, Apple with Steve Jobs, Al Gore with Inconvenient Truth. You can have pretty technical information and be spellbinding and it takes work, it takes work. So like TED, TED.com, they won a Peabody Award, a Peabody Award, that's a, that's a massive award for a company that distributes presentations. You wouldn't have dreamed about that not too long ago. So what's happening now is the audiences are getting more finicky. And if you make them sit for an hour and they're not interested, they know it's because you didn't care. And and there's just no tolerance for it anymore. So the pressure, if you're going to stand up and present or you're going to take 30 minutes from them, you better be prepared and you better make that time worth it for them. So the ones that are continuing to flatline in their presentations is just uh, people aren't tolerating it. So we're seeing it conferences, people just get up and leave. They'll get up and leave and be like, someone tweets like, Hey, the session over here is great. People get up and leave and go to the session that someone else thinks is better. So it's, it's kind of a non-negotiable now that you have to be prepared and have thought had done some thoughtful thinking about who you're, who you're speaking with, have some empathy.
0: So, what does it mean to be prepared? Like like how do I go from flat line to umph in my presentation? like what What's the one thing I could do?
1: if If there's one thing, uh, I would say it's empathetically think about them, and there's multiple lenses that you need to empathetically walk in their shoes. Um, there's all kinds of things that we do. I mean, there is the research you could do on a potential um customer. Um, but I'll get, I'll get like the uh, news feed for a while, for a few weeks to really understand the external pressures that they're on, really research, read the 10K, really understand the company pressure, really try to find any individual pressure that's on the person. Then think about every way they might resist, like how might they resist the message and brainstorm all the ways someone might resist this message and have this like a, a, a toolkit for people to understand how to understand them. And then the other thing is your narrative has got to be based in empathy and story and keep their interests. The interesting thing about storytelling is that the most critical uh, archetype in there really is the mentor. And the mentors in myths and movies are the ones that help someone else get unstuck. So as you're thinking about your customer, you can't make it all about, your sale. You can't make it all about your agenda. You can't make it all about you. You should show up and enrich your customer's life or your prospect's life in some way and create human flourishing because that's what a mentor does in myths and movies. That's in the um, in my TED talk, right? You got to flip your mindset that you're here to get someone else unstuck. So if they don't see, they're not listening, and they're like, "I don't need this person." They're not solving my pain and they're not helping me move my career forward. They don't, they don't need you. Um, and so they won't buy from you. Like, um, so you have to think a lot about what they may need and frame it uh, in a way that solves a problem that they're dealing with. Um, so you,
0: you've said that there is a shape, there's a structure, there's a formula, there is a sweet science to doing this because I, if I'm listening to this I'm like, okay, news feeds, understanding external pressure, leading into the resistance but you're saying that all that can be executed in a simple way. How do I do it?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's difference a bit between like a highly staged talk, which is kind of what the Resonate and TED Talk were about, where it's, where you, you um, are taking a big audience on a single journey and there's one person speaking, which is a bit different than uh, sales now today is conversations. So they come having read, having done their research, and they know a lot. And, and sometimes the candidates are coming in an issue-matching stage, right, where you're trying to connect. And so it's interesting because I am, to your point, I'm kind of conflating the difference between like how you show up and prepare for a conversation with how to... Per- how to prepare, uh, for an audience. Um, but the, the structure is, um, situational in some ways you have to be able to know, and, and every company has kind of their own process. We've kind of talked about that. Like what would work for me as a process might not work for everyone as a process. Um, so I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm experts. I'm not an expert at the sales process, but I'm an expert that when you get another human in the room, that's where the ability to influence them uh, is the most potent. Um, And there's definitely a method to that, which is in Resonate. Um, It's also in the shape of a story itself with the um, kind of the dramatic arc of a story, actually absolutely works.
0: There are a lot of different types of presentation settings. There's one-to-many. You were talking earlier before we hit record that you were delivering a keynote to 10,000, then 5,000 people. A lot of my uh, listeners are delivering a message to one customer, right? So they're salespeople or they're a sales leader, and they have something really important to communicate to a handful of people in an intimate setting, whether it's a a group of decision makers, whether it's you're trying to instill big change within your team, or maybe you need to get the board or the executive team to think about something differently. Talk about how I can get better at getting buy-in and gaining influence in those one to few audience situations.
1: Yeah, I think it's a lot about um, everything I say. will come back to empathy, right? Em- empathetically understand who you're talking to, how they're stuck, what's their pain point. But you also have to realize it's not like one meeting is going to transform their hearts and mind. It's it's a bigger process. And so different people process information in different ways. So we have the, um, the moment in the room. You can actually use some of the insights from um, my talk, my TED talk, um, and the book Resonate. Because once you are in the room, you can command the room with sound bites in the conversation that do compare what is, what could be, what is, what could be, what is, what could be. And that structure is sound and it is a persuasive structure. Um, And you can craft your sound bites that way. But if you look at the bigger journey, there may be a moment where you need to send them a slide doc and we have a big free book at slidocs.com where you craft a one pager or a few page document. Then they read it. They digest it. And the whole thing's really centered around alignment around this document. So it's just a completely different modality in how you do it. We do a ton of psychometrics at our company. And I know there's a, some companies that are emerging right now where they have a very high probability of completely understanding the disc profile, the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, like you, it'll feed it to you and it'll say, we're highly confident that this person is a D in the disc profile an ENTJ in Myers-Briggs and an eight in Enneagram. And then, you know, you know that they're going to be a champion and then you can approach them and their ego in a way that does that. So there's so many tools emerging right now through artificial intelligence to help you get to know who you're talking to. And then you need to map everything you're saying into empathetically understanding them. Everything should be an, about what they need and not what you need. Because you shouldn't just let's, send them all your materials and send them the boilerplate stuff. You won't win the really big sales that way.
0: Let's talk about uh, this slide doc for for a moment because yeah. there's a. I think there are a lot of folks listening saying, what is a slide doc? And, and I want to set this up for them. A lot of times you, you put together this presentation, like, you, you know, you've got a board meeting or you've got an hour with the CEO and you go into it expecting to present the idea. But then you get bombarded with questions. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and you don't even get through your content. Enter the slide doc. So tell me why there's, there's probably a better way for those meetings than to even build a presentation.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of momentum building right now around the, the elimination of pre- presenting altogether. Like Jeff Bezos has the six-page memo. Sheryl Sandberg said no more PowerPoint. So people are saying, "Oh, you shouldn't use these presentation tools," whereas in reality, they're very powerful um, as like a visual document. So so many people make visual documents and presentation tools. They don't want to have to go out to a big expensive Adobe product. It's just pervasive. And they're dense. They're, they're more dense than you should use in a um, stand and deliver presentation, but you can actually make them more dense, like put enough information, beautiful hierarchy, great pictures, and create a document that you send as a read ahead. And You can create a document in presentation software that you have as a leave behind. It's all customizable. Sales enablement should definitely all be in presentation software so it's modularized and it's able to be customized so a slide doc basically lets you complete and do full thinking you write paragraphs you write complete thoughts and it's dense but you never stand in deliberate so we what we recommend is as you get higher and higher up in the c-suite and you're able to present your ideas you maybe have you have a story and you say hey I'm going to take I'm going to take five minutes. I just want to get this five minute narrative out. I know we have 30 minutes. I'll get the five minute narrative. I have 200 backup slides here and it's an appendix. That's where your slide docs are, right? All your documents, your charts, your graphs that went into formulating your five minute arc. Um, And then you open it up to Q&A and you have 20, you might want to hop up and whiteboard out a big network diagram that's going to work if you're like a technical consultant, consultative salesperson. There's all kinds of ways that you can use the 25 minutes in the meeting for them, your audience, your executives or whoever you're speaking to, for them to pull out of you what they need to make a decision. So you do an arc, they ask questions, you could pop these slides up. There's ways to make a, look kind of like a bingo card where you can click and it would jump to sections in the back. Uh, And then you have all the backup uh, to what you need. So again, so slide docs are like a read ahead, Then you present in the room, but you make sure it's all kind of navigable and very tiny, crisp, clear, short narrative. And then you follow up again with a slide doc, and that's the follow-up material. It's enough to read, it's very skimmable, they're beautiful. There's, um, I think there's four uh, templates up there. We make them four by three and 16 by nine. And it's amazing. Go in and like hit tabulate on the body copy and stuff, and they're beautiful. So you can go put your own logo in it, and you can use the basic, the guts of these templates that we did that are that are really well done. It'll make it'll be easy for you to make a beautiful slide doc if you pull the templates down.
0: Yeah. So if uh, we'll put some links in the show notes, she's she has done a lot of uh, work to build some really powerful, beautiful design tools. In your book, Data Story, Nancy, you talk about. Um, this executive summary. And so I see a lot of uh, decks in, you know, for companies that are raising money or quarterly reports.
2: Yeah.
0: And I can't tell what they want me to understand. Like it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of numbers and, and I just can't make sense of it. But when I look at your executive summary, I'm like, why, why can't I get this all the time? And so What is it about that one? And the executive summary is just a piece of a slide doc, but what is it about that that makes it so simple and so convincing?
1: Yeah, that's so great. Uh, Yeah, so the um, executive summary we set up as the second page of a slide doc. So there's the cover and then the second page, and that should be your point of view about the action that needs to be taken. It's built in a three-act structure um, and it's just like it could be three short paragraphs, or so you can unpack it better. But it basically tells you in narrative form um, the first uh, chapter, first paragraph, you could call it needs to establish what the current state is. So right out of the chute, you would say what the problem or opportunity is you found in the data. That's the current state. The data says this problem, or the data says this opportunity. That's the first. Let's, let's
0: stop there for a second. So, so I, yeah. I want to make sure everybody's. So the application could be. We've done some discovery with a customer or we're getting ready to uh, present some findings or some opportunities to our team or the management team. So act one is what is reality? And it's just narrative form, what we found. Right. Right. right.
1: Yeah, I guess I should have said
0: what that's said. OK. No, we're, we're here now. So, so we've got so we've got act one that is here's what's going on.
1: Here's the current state. So it's in the data story is about the findings in the data. And to your point, it could be to executives, customers, internal stakeholders. It could be a project status, whatever. But the the when you dig around in data, you it's a pretty binary. What you're going to get out of it either get a you either get a, you found a problem or you've identified an opportunity. So that's the first thing you do in the first paragraph is you say I found this problem or opportunity in the data. And then the now second, do
0: we like characterize the problem now or like how, how is it, is it good to just be super objective about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the objectivity is, that's an interesting question because when you have a finding in data, the data is not going to say, the data is not going to tell you what to do about your finding, right? You just have a finding. Like I noticed that Latin America is at 25% of what it was last year. Well, that's a finding it's it's not going to tell you what the problem or opportunity is. So the problem about Latin America being twenty five percent of what it is you you would state so you're not stating that you would be stating that the, you found a problem so you say there is a problem with Latin America sales dropping by blah blah percent like you you state the problem or opportunity Got it. that you, Okay. The middle is in storytelling is known as the messy middle, right? So then there's this statistic, this actual statistic that you want to actually turn around. So that would be the number that isn't going the direction that you think it could go. And that's the statistics. The third act is therefore we need to take this action to have a positive resolution to the story. So it's like Here's our normal, here's the problem opportunity I found, here's the data that supports it that needs to be transformed, and here's the resolution of it. It's three acts, and that and the middle part is the data that needs to be different than its current state. Now that's what transformation is. That's what we love about story. We love we love watching someone transform. So that's why that number would be in the middle. I have examples like if it helps. I I pulled up a couple examples.
0: Let's walk through an example. Yeah, I'm wondering like a a good practical act one, two, three that would might help uh, drive this point home.
1: Yeah. So I'll just I have it in front of me. So the beginning could be something like we projected double digit growth for product X within six months. And this is the middle. Only three percent of the sales team downloaded the new presentation material from the sales portal. So, this is the ending. We need to retrain. That's the verb. That's the action. We need to retrain the team immediately on how product X is going to drive our long-term growth strategy. So, the, the final act always has an action or a verb so that you know how to have like what you could call a happy ending. Uh, and so, that's kind of an example of one.
0: Got it. So, here's, here's the opportunity or problem. Messy middle is characterizing the variance like this. It's either good or bad. And then the third act is here's what we need to do. And it, and it requires yes. action to impact it. And then, so, okay. So yeah. that's, if you're listening yeah. to
1: this podcast, you should be on podcasts talking about data story because you said it's so clear right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. And then I see this sometimes in the presentations, there's, we're going to do 48 things. And it seems like, well, we can't do all those things. So, like, when when you think about an executive summary, how much is too much? What's the sweet spot of, even if we're going to break it down in three acts, what's the sweet spot of interventions or opportunities?
1: Yeah, I think that the executive summary is like one page that sets up a bigger document. So that bigger document could be two slides, two, two pages worth of material. It could be 50. depends on the scale of it. Like sometimes for, to get executive buy-in, you have to thought through it pretty deeply because they're gonna. their next obvious question should be answered on your next slide. So you should at least know the path that an executive's mind may go to be able to have teed up. Sure thing, they, they turned the page and their next question was already answered. So I think it depends on the scale of the problem you're solving. So if you're kind of like, um, I wonder how billable this department was this month, that's one statistic. Is different than we need to re-engineer all of how we track all of our inventory around the globe. Like that's a big thing, like tracking your entire supply chain is different than knowing one statistic from one department. So the scale of the problem you're trying to solve will drive the scale of the slide doc or the scale of the um, summary that you provide. Got the it. cool thing about slide doc is let's say you decide five pages is is awesome you know McKinsey and the big consulting firms are, are known for doing what's called the thud factor they would print out their deck of the of the problem they solve for you and they would go bomb and they would just drop it on the desk and it would make a big thud right because the thickness of it made it be like wow that was probably worth a million dollars you know because they could just thump it down. Well, what you you can't have the thud factor when you're sending digital files. So you can have the first five or eight slides be just beautifully done and really clear and really well crafted. You can have 100, 200, 500 backup slides. Like slides are practically free. So put as much information that way, if they're curious, they could just keep on clicking and make it organized and structured. But if people don't talk about appendixes anymore and put it big old appendix in there. They'll be impressed, right? To say, hey, you only need to read the first few slides. But if you're curious, there's a great big appendix in there you can cruise through. And and some people want that kind of detail.
0: I think that's a really great piece of insight for uh, for sales leaders that have you know, quarterly board reports or monthly executive team meetings. Your presentation doesn't need to be all of the nuance. Your presentation really needs to be Nancy's format for the executive summary. Two or three interventions over the next 30 to 90 days that clearly states the problem, characterizes it, and then tells the board or the management team what you're going to do to tackle the problem a few more detail driven slides to support each of those opportunities and then throw the rest of it, like how you got to these conclusions, throw that in the appendix. Don't put the, you know, the, the board's busy. They're not going to read all that. And, and it, but it, but it is important to show them that you did the work.
1: Exactly. It's impressive actually when they're like, uh, they just sent me 200 slides, you know, you only need to read the first few, but it just shows that, how much effort you put into coming to the conclusions and and they won't question it. They won't question that it wasn't thoughtfully prepared.
0: So if if you're looking, I think that's, that's the golden nugget right there is that your presentation probably just needs to be restructured and you'll get the influence or you'll get the buy-in that you need from the board. It's, it's just making it more simple for them. So let's switch gears. Uh. 2020 was a tough year for a lot of leaders because they had to implement change. And uh, what I tell uh, the folks I coach is that it's not, your team resists the change, not because that they don't believe in the change or they don't think it's the right change, but because the, the change is going to require them to do something differently. And you talk about, resistance. Um, And so I want you to speak to the sales leaders that are having to communicate really difficult changes that need to happen in the business and the importance of not ignoring the resistance, but actually speaking to it.
1: Yeah. You're talking about sales leaders that are transforming their own departments.
0: Yeah, that, they may have yeah. to. They may have to make real tough changes with inside yeah. the organization around compensation structure or how we do the job every day or what we're going to take to market, and that creates a lot of resistance.
1: Yeah, organizational change is so difficult. I know even during COVID, I, I my emotional fuel and my levels and how I showed up was like flipping so fast. My husband was like, I, I, I can't have you work from my office because like I would be on the veranda, I would sketch a future org and then I would come in and then I had to lay someone off and then I was like, and then I had to modulate. I'd be like, and then I'd be in this meeting and then I could be excited, but then I had to be crying or then I, like, it was just like, and my point is back to empathy. You need to know where the person you're talking to is in their journey. Because a lot of times the leader is in a different place in the story than their travelers. We call it the torchbearer leader who has followers. So you look at like Frodo traveled with a bunch of people, right? And you have to understand what is the emotional fuel people need and where you're at in the journey. So we, uh, Patty Sanchez and I co-authored a book called Illuminate. And in it, there's five stages of a, of a transformation journey. So it's a five-act structure. And there's the dream, the leap, the leap, the fight, the climb and the arrive. We looked at movements, all kinds of movements from the software movement to the civil rights movement. We looked at stories, but not just anecdote stories. We looked at epic length tales, where it's like has vast, you know, moves over vast amounts of space and time and generations because that's what these big change initiatives are like. And it's dream leap is act one. Fight, climb is the messy middle and arrive is the third act or the ending. And it's the fight, climb phase that is fatiguing for your followers. So like when I'm out on my veranda dreaming about the future, I'm in the dream phase, but my team is in the long slog climbing up. They're in the climb phase. And it's easy as leaders to be like, oh, we're in the climb phase. Let's use the metaphor of passing a baton. You know, and you're just like, that's not emotional fuel they need when they are in when they're in the Missy middle, it's like this fight, they need bravery and in the climb, they need endurance, you know, and and you just need to know Um, there's a great matrix in, in the book and it talks about dream leap fight, climb, arrive across the top. But then it says what types of speeches, stories, ceremonies and symbols that you need at each stage along the way so that they have the fuel they need to show up in that phase um, and perform well. It's a it's a powerful book.
0: So we, as leaders, and we're communicating change. Uh, we we're in the story, and we play a role. And you say, uh, become like the mentor in a story. What does that mean?
1: The, the mentor is the one who gets people unstuck. So in myths and movies, they're usually the one that comes alongside the hero, normally because they've been a hero themselves. So like Yoda. Yoda was eight, 900 years old when he met Luke, and he had been a Jedi master for a long, 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 long time. And he'd already been around this rodeo multiple times. So when he shows up in Luke's life, he has the skills to help him get on stock. Obi-Wan Kenobi was another mentor to Luke. And he's a little bit more interesting to me because he gave Luke a lightsaber for his physical journey. But he also gave him the force for his inner journey. And in every story, there's an outer journey, a struggle. Oh, I'm gonna fight a dragon. But then there's an inner journey of like, oh my God, I think I really do love her. Like there's some sort of inner and outer journey all the time. Your customers are going through the same thing. They have an outer problem that maybe selling them a router fixes, but they also are stuck either in their career or stuck in their mindset. There's a battle in themselves too. And sometimes we forget about that. So as a salesperson, you are the mentor. You're not the hero. And so your sole purpose and your sole role is to help someone else get unstuck. That's your job is I'm going to bring a magical gift, a special tool and help them get unstuck. Those are the three things a mentor does. And so that's the power of the position that you're in. If you've empathetically thought long enough about what they need, you will show up in their lives at the right time and help them get unstuck. So it's, it's beautiful, beautiful.
0: Wow. So, um, where can, this has been This has been really helpful. Where can someone go find more of your work? How do we keep up with Nancy?
1: Awesome. That's so nice. Well, I have a special spot on my website. We set up duarte.com slash Nancy. Tons of like free things you can sign up for related to all of this. Um, I'm on Twitter at Nancy Duarte and I'm on LinkedIn. I do connect to everyone that connects to me on LinkedIn. So that's how to find me. We have Instagram and all that. We have all those stuff.
0: So, oh, Nancy, thank you so much. And for everybody, I'm just going to put a bow on this. Uh, you, The extent to which your career will, um, if you think of your career as a story, the extent to which your career will have a happy ending is largely driven by your ability to communicate and clear with clarity to affect change. And uh, if you want to get better at it, if you want your career better. Uh, to have a happy ending, you probably need to study Nancy's work and, and tell better stories. So, Nancy, thank you so much for coming and spending some time with me today.
1: This was so fun. It was so fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Kula, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Nigel. So glad to be here.
0: Yeah, so we're talking sales presentations, and I think it's important because I think we've all resolved to the fact that uh, we have to sell virtually now. Yeah. And, well, it's just a little bit different than getting in front of a room and presenting. Even though we're still using a deck, we still mm-hmm. have the same goal, which is get the business. Yep. It's just different in a Zoom or a meeting, right?
2: It is different. Here's the thing that's so interesting. When people are behind a computer screen, they feel like they're talking to another machine. And so like the human level of interaction that would happen if you were at a coffee shop or in a boardroom just doesn't exist. And so it's so funny. People feel like they have to be, I mean, you do want to be professional, but everyone gets like Robotronic behind the computer camera and it's just, it makes it even more awkward and uncomfortable than it already is being virtual with somebody. So it's just so funny to me how quickly we forget to that we are indeed talking to another human on the other side of the phone, even though obviously we aren't in person. But yeah, it is different. And you've got to be able to still maintain, I think, that level of humanity or humanness, if you will, even though you're talking to a computer screen. It's weird, but you just got to kind of embrace it and lean in.
0: So you've been teaching this to companies and marketers and sellers, uh, starting with simple things like, Do I look at the green dot? Do I look at the person's picture in the screen? Like what are, what are your, what are Kula's like best tips on just how to feel more comfortable? And then we'll get into like tactically uh, the elements of a presentation, but let's just talk about feel because you're right. A lot of folks want to replicate that eyeball to eyeball, Yeah, I feel you in the coffee shop or I feel your energy in the boardroom and it starts with feeling comfortable in our own skin. So what do you got?
2: Oh man. I love this question. Well, first of all, like just let's call a spade a spade. If you have a creepy background and it looks like you're in someone's like shower in the basement, let's choose a different background. If you're virtually on zoom or go to meeting, it's just, it's so awkward. Everyone knows that you've got to find a place in your house to be on the phone, but let's not make the background of your <laughs> zoom call creepier than it has to be. The other thing is, um, obviously be Comfortable. So I also teach yoga on the side. You know this. So what I like to do is like sit in a comfortable seated position and not like hunched over on my, um, desk or like propped way back. But I like to sit in a comfortable position with this is super specific, but with my spine alert, but relaxed. So it's not super stiff, but I'm not hunched over. And then honestly, before the conversation, I do a very quick breathing exercise and just take five really smooth, long inhales and exhales. Um, it just helps me like relax and get really present because like you said, you can't, um, imitate that human interaction, but you can still practice presence even when you're on a zoom call trying to sell somebody. So I like to do some sort of really, really quick, not super intense, almost ritual, if you will, before I get on a sales call with somebody just so I can really be present and and pay attention because- you know, If my screen isn't full screen on my computer, then I'm looking at emails. I'm looking at text messages. I'm trying to respond to people's Slack notifications. And even though the person on the other side can't see what's on my screen, it's obvious that I'm distracted. So I like to just get really present and then site, like turn my do not disturb on, on my computer so that notifications don't pop up, of course. Um, and then the other thing in terms of like looking at the green dot or looking at the other person, I naturally just look into the other person's eyes. And here's what I'll say about that. And if you have like a, a fancy camera set up, you can do this too. But I like to just say to people, Hey, I'm actually looking right at your face on my computer screen. So even though it looks like I'm not paying attention to the camera, I'm looking right at your face. So I think another thing that we can all learn from is just like stating the obvious so it doesn't become this unspoken, awkward thing and stating it from the very beginning. That way you sort of even the playing field, if you will. You call out the elephant in the room and um, you just get to kind of move into the sales conversation in a way that's a lot more relaxed and natural.
0: So then at some point, once we get relaxed and natural, um, and you know, we talked a little bit about backgrounds, I am more of a fan of your actual background. I'm noticing that like, there are some okay virtual backgrounds, but if your upload speed isn't adequate, like when you move or if you move, it creates like shadows around you. And then this other thing that I've noticed Kula is uh, people using their virtual backgrounds as like some type of uh, platform to promote like (laughs) a movement or something that they're into. And I'm like, well, so the the danger with that is if is if you're selling, yeah, uh, if you have something you want someone to buy, if I don't like your personal or political or whatever it is that you're promoting with your background, you may have lost the deal. That's a very so fair I, point. And so my my bias is to just have a real background and do like Kula did and invest in a cool plan and styling your shelf. So, <laughs> Style but at some job. point. At some point, if you are selling, Mm -hmm. your background is going to be irrelevant because you're going to share your screen. And in that screen ought to be a presentation. And this is really where you have a lot of insight. Tell me, uh, when selling virtually, why the normal presentation that you used to carry when you showed up in the office just isn't going to cut it anymore.
2: What I've seen a lot is, is people rely so heavily on data and statistics and numbers and facts. And that's typically what I see people honestly lead with in sales presentations. And give me an example of that. Okay. So, uh, we worked with a, a really well-known social media brand and training their sales team on how to be great storytellers and self by using, um, the tool of story. And their biggest complaint was our sales folks get into a boardroom and all they start talking about is how many people are on our platform, what the engagement's like on our platform, how much uh, revenue we generate for customers on our platform, and there's no story element at all. So you're just bombarding the audience with all of these numbers that they can't quite make sense of. And and I think, you know, when we're already on our computers anyways, typing all the time, doing Zoom calls all the time, In this sort of like digital world, when you just add to that noise of statistics and data and things that somebody has to remember, and this is what you need to know to think that I'm interesting enough to give me your money, it just gets lost in the noise. And so what I think is an effective way to sell, not only virtually, but also in person, is to frame all of that data and those statistics and those quote reasons why you should buy our product or service in the context of a larger narrative that people can relate to a lot easier. Because, you know, I mentioned it earlier, when you get behind a computer screen, you kind of feel like you have to be a robot. And so it's like, here, Mr. Robot, here are all the numbers that you need to know to make your decision. And while that's certainly important in a sales presentation, it's it's more memorable and more um, important when it's framed in the context of a larger narrative. So that piece of information, if you will, belongs in your sales presentation, just not at the very beginning. And that's what honestly I see a lot of people do. It's just like, hey, here are the numbers. Do you want to sign on the dotted line? And you kind of have to feel out the person you're selling to. But usually that doesn't work, especially when people are on their computer, on Zoom calls all day long, reviewing numbers, looking at P&L statements, trying to figure out what their profit and loss you know, situation is, where's overhead going, all that stuff. So I think breaking up that sort of monotony by framing important data, if you will, in the context of a larger narrative is really what will help you not only authentically connect with the person that you're trying to sell to, but they'll remember what you're saying because it's such a way that their brain can understand and and remember.
0: So give me, um, it, you know, without disclosing proprietary information, give me a potential reframe. If I'm leading with users and revenue generated, what kind of reframe would you offer a seller that's starting with that approach?
2: That's so good. You, the
0: first- you're talking about a larger narrative. So like, let me in go. on what this larger narrative is.
2: Okay. So the first thing you want to realize, and you know this because you're familiar with the story framework, but, um, For those of you listening, I work with a company called StoryBrand and we teach a communication framework that positions the customer as the hero. So the fundamental paradigm shift that you have to make before you go into a sales conversation is that the person you're talking to is the main character in the story. They're the hero, right? And the only reason your product or service matters to that person is because they have a problem. So data and statistics doesn't matter unless it solves a problem that the hero has that your potential customer has. So the first thing that you want to do is get to the problem that your customer is dealing with and get to it fast because until you state that problem, they really have no reason to pay attention to you. I'll go into a, a very, very elementary description of how the brain processes information. And if you're a neuroscientist, please don't come after me. But at the very sort of... Ut- tell you,
0: Kula, there are no neuroscientists. <laughs> in Thank you God.
2: There. I'm safe. Okay. So at the very fundamental sort of primal level, the brain of every human being it's trying to do two things. It's trying to, it's constantly scanning the environment for things that is products, services, people, places that will help it survive and thrive. And then also conserve calories. So what that means for you as a seller is if you don't position your product or service as something that helps your customer survive. And if you don't do it in such simple language, they don't have to think a lot about what you're trying to say. They're not paying attention to you. So a refrain for this social media brand that I talked about earlier would be rather than leading with, you should be on this platform because here's how many users we have. It's, hey, your message is becoming irrelevant to your target audience. And it's a, it's a you're spinning your wheels trying to figure out how to reach them again. When you lead with the problem in a sales presentation, it almost immediately causes the other person to just be like, yes, oh my gosh, I am struggling with that. That's my issue. And I'm trying to fix it. So when you start with the problem, it then frames all of those data, those data points and statistics as important to them because it helps them solve their problem. So now when I talk about, you know, if I'm the seller and I say, hey, I know that your brand is becoming irrelevant to people that you're tra- to your target audience and you're spinning your wheels trying to find out how to figure out how to reach them still. The other person would, you know, hypothetically be like, yes, oh my gosh, that's our that's our issue and we can't figure it out. I would say, I totally get that. Here's here is a solution to that problem. And here's why that solution is gonna work for you because we have this many users, this much revenue generated on average from our users, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then, you know, long after that sales presentation ends, that person thinks of me and thinks, oh, that girl has a solution to a problem that I have. And not, oh, that's some girl who spouted out a bunch of numbers. So you want to always start the presentation or at least get to it really fast with the problem that your customer is dealing with, which means you gotta think about what they're actually struggling with, right? Mm-hmm. If you're selling a product or service, it is because someone needs it because they have a problem. So you need to figure out really what that that problem is and, and how that's making them feel it's you know, the the sort of emotional struggle if you will and then associate your product or service and its credibility as the resolution to that problem they're facing
0: so uh, do you think it's wise to so we're going to set up the problem Mm -hmm. and the pain and then you know there's there's got to be some transition to uh, the resolution the blissful utopia the success but um Isn't there some merit to, uh, really leaning into resistance, right? Because like, it, it seems really easy to say, well, just do, buy our thing, and your world's going to be better. Like that's, there's, there's this element of, well, we have all these other things that we could do. Mm -hmm. It could be a competitive situation where you're, you know, in an open bid. Let, what do you think about speaking to resistance?
2: Well, I think you should speak to it early and I think you should speak to it often. So, and this is quite monumental of me to say this because I am historically very conflict avoidant, but as my career has progressed and you really encouraged me in this several years ago, I've had to get really good at confronting people and naming the objection that I know someone will have. So, and there's also a place in the narrative where this is appropriate when in terms of actual structuring of sales presentations. But you know, if you know the top three objections that the person on the other side of the screen has, then I would speak very clearly and directly to those objections and then come up with some sort of statement or case study or testimonial that shows the person that's not a worry they need to have going into business with you. So let's just say, you know, the, the number one objection or resistance that a customer has around buying your product or service is price, right? Um, what you don't want to do is immediately discount the price in order to get the deal, right? Because you can people can price shop all day. What you'll want to do is say, you know, hey, I know this is a big investment. Here is an example of someone we've worked in the past. Within the past, who's felt the exact same way. You know, they might have not had the full budget or were hesitant to invest this much into their whatever business, um, but they ended up signing the contract anyway. And within the first six months, not only did they make back the investment, but they saw X amount of revenue generated because of this plan that we created for them. So that's just one example and it's a testimonial slash case study for how you can overcome that. But I think it's a great exercise to take your entire sales team through. Maybe spend, you know, 90 minutes or two hours literally listing the top five to 10 resistances or objections that your customers have and get on the same page about how you overcome those resistances and then teach those people on a sales call to directly speak to the objection and then show how you'll help them overcome that or why that doesn't need to be part of their sort of mental model as they assess who they're going to do business with.
0: So you, so we're going to talk about the problem, the pain at some place we have to lean into the, in some instances known, uh, in some instances perceived or uh, anticipated objections, Mm -hmm. Where does this fit in, in, in terms of like actual placement of the presentation? Yeah. So we got, we're going to start with pain. Mm-hmm. We've got this, this nebulous uh, need to talk about resistance and objections. Yeah. And then at some point we have to ask for the business. So like oh, if really? we had to lay this out in tranches or sections, how does it work best? I'm so glad
2: you asked that. Okay. So here's what I would do. Section one, if we're sectioning it out officially, section one would be the problem, Right. What are you dealing with? How is it making you feel? Um, It's really frustrating, overwhelming, whatever. So section one is the problem. Section two then would be, I would say, talking about the product, but in a way that's benefit focused. So, hey, these are your problems. I understand. So in that problem section, you also want to just empathize the customer. I get that's really frustrating. I know what you're going through and there's a better way, essentially. Then you can say section two would be, quote product description, but I don't want to say that because I don't want people to think, oh, I can go into all of the nuts and bolts of our product because that's not what I want you to do there. But really you're just saying, hey, our product has historically helped this many customers overcome this exact same problem and then maybe give an example. Then I would say section three would be that's where you could kind of put in the objections and overcome resistance. And then The next piece, step four would be the plan. So you got to understand too, that the people you're doing business with feel a very big gap between where they are now and actually paying you money for your product or service. So they're on one side of the river and that river is really, really wide and scary to get to the other side, which is signing the deal and, and paying you money. So and here's the other thing: people don't move into mystery like that. So if your customer feels like, "Oh my god, this is a really, really big leap, and I'm not quite sure how to get across this river," they're not going to move forward. So you've got to be very explicit and telling them the plan, so that you guide them to that buying decision in a way that feels extremely easy and not intimidating. So there's a couple different ways you can do that. Um, you, if if the plan that you want to provide your customer is you know, step one, two, three leading up to the sale. So if it's, you know, step one, you sign the contract, then we'll, you know, I don't know, figure out payment terms. And then you sign the contract and we kick off the project. That could be the plan because it's still you bridging that gap between where they are now and you getting paid. But another sort of mental gap having is, okay, what happens after I pay you, right? So your plan could also be, all right, so you'll sign this contract, we'll get payment. And then The next week we'll schedule our kickoff call. So we'll all get on the same page about the project terms and then we'll start executing on the agreed upon scope of work or whatever it is. So I would, in section four of your sales proposal or sales presentation, provide a plan. So what are the three or four things that your customer needs to do either to get to the point of sale where they actually pay you money or what happens right after they do the deal? So if your sales cycle is really long, then the plan should be what happens leading up to the sale. If your sales cycles really quick and they just need to swipe their credit card, then I would include a plan that explains what happens right after that. What that does is just overcomes, number one, price resistance and it gives your customer an immense amount of trust and confidence that you know what you're doing. And then after the plan, that's when I would include the call to action. So that's when I would you know, not fumble the ball on the one yard line and close the deal. And that call to action you know some salespeople usually don't feel this way but some people are, are um, hesitant to ask for the sale because they feel like they're being stingy right but when you don't confidently call your customers to accent action and you feel like that's polite what your customers interpret that as is lack of confidence and distrust in your own product so you think you're being polite your customer just thinks you're weak So you've got to go into that call to action section of your sales proposal, assuming a posture of confidence, because you know your product is going to solve their problem. And you also, of course, need to be really clear in that call to action. You need to clearly give your customer something they can accept or reject. And that step needs to be obvious and just so, so clear.
0: So if you're listening to this and you're thinking... You know call to action may not always be the objective of the proposal, but but think of it this way as a call to action is a commitment. And yeah, what we're doing uh, is mapping customer commitments to increasing their level of intent to actually transact with your business. So the call to right. action could be a commitment to explore. Yep, could be a commitment to uh, collaborate. And Anthony Inarino lays this out really well in his book, uh, The Ten Closing Commitments. Mm-hmm. Because um, you're right, Kula, in identifying early that uh, a lot of folks listening to this have a long sales cycle. Yeah. So this notion of I'm going to just get your credit card uh, doesn't play out well. And, and if that's right. you, then maybe think about through the plan part of your presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Through the call to action, what commitments are you seeking to gain from the customer along the way? So that's great. You've laid it out in step-by-step sequence. Are there any more steps?
2: Well, here's one thing I'll say about the the call to action. If it's not, you know, buy now, which for folks listening to this, it probably won't be. You still want that commitment for all the reasons Nigel explained, but also because you want your customer to have skin in the game. People chase down investments that they make. So even if the investment, the quote commitment is just, you know, a second phone call or an in-person meeting with the decision makers or whatever, or, you know, an evaluation of your current, I don't know, operation and whatever it is you're doing, you want your customer to, as they get closer to the buying decision, you want them to have had, you want them to have had put skin in the game so that they are more likely to chase down that investment so that they see a return.
0: Well, you, you, we started this talking about, um, story and the fact yeah. that starting with data and statistics really doesn't engage the brain. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't like movies that don't end well. So how yeah. does this end well, um, from, from the perspective of story? Yeah.
2: So every story of course has to end in a good way or a bad way. So, as part of your actual presentation, you also want to do what I call foreshadowing the climactic scene. So you want to give your customer a, a very visual description of what will happen once you guys are in business together and once they've seen a return on their investment. So you can get super specific with this and you can also keep it pretty long-term. So, you know, immediately your problems will be solved, right? You'll save time, you'll save money. um, You'll see employee retention increase, whatever it might be. And then down the road, because you invested now, what then will happen in your business? So maybe it's, you know, I don't know, you're more profitable or you're able to take your business public or whatever it might be. So that successful result or the climactic scene needs to be really, really clear in your customer's minds. And the clearer you paint that picture, the more willing your customer is going to be to move forward because they want to achieve that thing that you've just sort of like dangled out in front of their face. Uh, you don't want to be manipulative with it, of course, but you do need to say, Hey, if you do this and if you move forward, this great thing will happen for you. But then you also got to say, Hey, if you don't do this, there's something at stake, right? This story could end poorly and you could keep wasting time and you could keep wasting money and you could keep seeing your advertising dollars go down the toilet, right? And again, you don't want to be heavy handed or manipulative with that, but it's the truth, right? If your product genuinely resolves a problem and they don't buy your product, their problem is just going to get worse, right? So you've got to also describe what's at stake for them.
0: You know, I I think that's an interesting point. And I'm with you that we need to characterize the stakes. I also wonder, and I want your take on this, um, like talking about the cost of just not doing anything and and almost um, all, like thinking of it as because you talked about you don't want to be pressury or you don't want to be heavy handed. Yeah. Um, but I think the danger, like from the seller's perspective, is like it's OK to be the expert on your offering. But you're not the expert on their problem. They're the only yeah. expert on their yeah. problem. Yeah. And so um, I wonder, um, do you have any language that might help someone set stakes, characterize what failure looks like, but not put words in your customer's mouth?
2: That's a good point. Yeah, I like conversationally asking questions. I think that that's a non-invasive way of kind of getting the customer to self-identify, if you will, that something bad will happen. So, you know, you could say, um, you know, what would happen to your customer base if you didn't make this investment? And that might feel a little heavy or, you know, um, how much more time are your teams going to waste if you don't implement this process into your operation, you know, whatever. So asking questions is a, is again, a non-invasive sort of not, heavy-handed way of helping the customer realize what's at stake without it sounding like you're an expert on their problem.
0: Essentially, what happens if you don't do this? Yeah, Let totally. not them fill in the blank.
2: Yeah. And if they struggle to do that, then that's when you can be a little bit more explicit and say, you know, if doing this is going to save you X, Y, and Z and make you X, Y, and Z, then not doing it means you don't get those things. And a lot of times people are more motivated to avoid loss achieve gain. So I think it, to your point, it's, it's a, it's an important piece of the entire presentation and the whole narrative to help them understand that.
0: Here's what I think is the most important takeaway around um, using story to sell is if, if you are the director and you're the executive producer of this story, but you don't save any space for the hero of the story to talk about their role and how they want to see it be successful, I don't know how you're going to get the deal closed. And what I mean by that is if you've got a 30 minute presentation scheduled and you find yourself talking through most of <laughs> that 30 minutes, but but it's a beautiful story and yeah. you've got a great character arc and you've characterized success and failure and the plan is crystal clear. You're not talking about data at the front end. Yeah. But you're doing the talking. It seems like that's not good either.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the first part, I mean, the purpose of a sales call really is to understand your customer, of course, but then also unveil their pain points and their struggles. So you know exactly how to position your product or service as a resolution to that. So you've got to ask questions to to really tease out what it is they're truly struggling with and what they're suffering from and how is it making them feel because a lot of times and i don't know if that's if it's this way for the folks listening to this but a lot of times people are so desperate for help that they kind of make a rash decision and that might not be the case for these people but um, when you're so desperate for help and with so many things are going wrong for you it's easy to just forget about all the specific things that are going wrong, if that makes sense. So it's like, everything's a mess. Oh my God, I need help. If that's your customer, then it's, it's important that you help them understand that they the problems they have are solvable, not only to like identify the problem. Hey, everything's a mess, but, but let's get specific. Your profits going in the wrong direction. Overhead is creeping all of these things. And then the plan should clearly s- speak to how their problem is going to be solved if they do business with you. And all of that involves a conversation, right? So if you just assume that they're dealing with the problem you think they're dealing with and they're not, then the whole presentation is a flop because you've built the narrative around the wrong thing. So yeah, I think it's hugely important to let your customer air their grievances, if you will. But I think you can still guide that conversation. Like you need to build rapport. There's a bunch of different strategies to do that match and mirroring and all that stuff. But you know, really, it's your job to guide that conversation in such a way that you pull out what it is your customer struggling with, what future they really long for. And then once you know those things, it allows you to enter into the narrative with that relief, which is your product.
0: Cooler, Thank you. So if uh, if someone's listening and they wanted to learn more about the StoryBrand framework and how to use Story to uh, improve their presentations, where would you point them?
2: I would point them to StoryBrand.com. I'd point them to BusinessMadeSimple.com. Business Made Simple is an online learning platform we have a bunch of online business courses that really teach you kind of the no fail business basics. And the there's a course inside that platform called the story brand messaging framework that will really dive deeper into this narrative structure, why it's so important to communicate through this lens, especially when you're selling. And then it'll teach you how to create that narrative that does all the things that we mentioned
0: in our conversation today. All right. And if if you want me to put a bow on this episode, you know, start by feeling comfortable and that's with uh, body and posture Yes, and, uh, communicating your intent, letting your uh, your attendees virtually know what you're, where you're looking, why you're looking there. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean up your background. Be thoughtful about it, and think about how you can keep your presentation into four of the steps that Kula talked about. Mm-hmm. Keep it short. Less mm-hmm. is more. Start mm-hmm. with the problem, and uh, yeah. You'll have better presentations. You'll close more deals. Kula, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Music from this episode is from my good buddy, Justin Adams. You can listen to Justin's music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you, Justin, for the music. And thank you for checking out another episode of The Revenue Hearts.